Warning. This episode contains details of the Sutherland Springs Massacre. Portions of the show will cover issues of domestic violence, gun violence, and content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This episode is dedicated to the memory of all those whose lives were taken in the Sutherland Springs Massacre, the survivors, and their families. This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You are the leader in the courtroom, and you want the jury to be looking to you for the answers. When you figure out your theory, never deviate. You want the facts to be consistent, complete, incredible. The defense has no problem running out the clock. Delay is the friend of the defense. It's tough to grow a firm by trying to hold on and micromanage. You've got to front load a simple structure for jurors to be able to hold on to. What types of creative things can we do as lawyers, even though we don't have a trial setting? Whatever you've got to do to make it real, you've got to do to make it real. But the person who needs convincing is you. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have attorney Jamal Asafar. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, Jamal just had a massive verdict in a case against the federal government. Uh, arising out of the mass shooting that was done at a church in Sutherland Springs, Texas. Uh, it was such an interesting case. I mean, I've been following you from afar. I've, I've known about other great results you've had over a number of years, but this one was just really incredible, and I really want to talk to you about it. Well, I'm 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 actually really flattered. I uh, I want to mention this uh, that uh, I, I kind of feel like insecure because. I don't know that I'm worthy of this podcast because I really <laughs> love this podcast and I really do learn so much from you and, and, and your guests and um, and uh, I'm real appreciative and humbled just to be on. Well, getting a big verdict on a case where I told one of my partners, like, I oh, don't take those cases, <laughs> like let someone else handle them. Uh, if that's not <laughs> enough, I don't know what is. <laughs> uh, okay, good. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm um, born and raised in, in Dallas, a fifth generation native Texan um, with a very interesting background. Uh, my name is the way it is because my dad's from Iraq, born and raised in Baghdad and came over here to study engineering at SMU where he met my mom, who's native Texan, uh, at a Middle Eastern mixer dance at SMU. And so that's how it all started. I was born and raised in Dallas and uh, um, then came down to UT to, to go to college and um and uh, always known I wanted to be a trial lawyer and uh, ever since I was 15. And uh, so I did a lot of a lot of mock trial in high school and, and, and uh, at UT and then in law school. And uh, then I, I met my wife in, in undergrad when I was 19. And both of us are trial lawyers and she's my law partner. So we have three kids together. She's my boss and she's my law partner as well. And, um, and so we've been at the firm uh, that we're at now. It's uh, national trial law, but historically in Austin known as Whitehurst Harkness. It's been around about 50 years. We're celebrating yeah. 50th year anniversary this year. And, and so that's, that's uh, I'm very lucky to be partnered with this, these group, with this group because my first mentor was Bill Whitehurst. Wow. Uh, 
and uh, he sat me down on my first jury trial. I think it was like a $10,000 case back my first year out of, out of law school. <laughs> I wasn't with the firm. He just He's just an extraordinary mentor. I think he was even the state bar president at the time when he sat me down at, over lunch, handed me his jury file, uh, Vordire file, to help me go through and understand how to ask questions on Vordire. Told me, you better tell them this is your first ever jury trial and that <laughs> you're nervous because you'll never get to use that in your advantage again. <laughs> so I did. Um, and so from there to be able to call, to be able to be partners with him and owners with him is, is really quite an honor. So that's kind of how I got started. I had good mentorship and I just kept at it. And then you've done a lot of, uh, federal tort claims, that case, case against the government. And, and I know you've done a lot of even medical negligence, mm-hmm. federal tort claims, that cases. How did you get into those? This is the, this is the best question to ask because, Anyone who's done an FTCA, Federal Tort Claims Act case, FTCA cases, like how the heck and how in the world did you get involved in this? And it's pretty straightforward. We got a birth injury case that came out of one of the Army hospitals in Texas and didn't know uh, FTCA from Adam. We just knew we, you know, we do a lot of birth injury cases around the country. And um, the case came through two of them at the same time out of the same Army hospital. And that's how we learned it. We said, okay, well, it's a federal case and can you sue the government? <laughs> can you sue the federal yeah. government? So that was like 20, gosh, almost almost 20 years ago. Um, and we ended up trying the case and getting two verdicts on that one for, the, for those military families. And we learned very quickly that, you know what? Uh, yes, it's hard. You have to go through all these immunity traps. You have to have all these unique legal questions and, and your fee is reduced and it's a federal bench trial and it's everything we're told is just terrible <laughs> as a plaintiff lawyer. But we got such good results in those two cases and we, we realized very quickly that we felt that these military families were just not getting trial lawyer representation. Um and we were hearing that from the federal judiciary as well. And so once those two cases happened, we got another one. And then we, you know, we figured out as well that these are the federal rules of procedure. We can do this all over. They're uniform. We just need to, to work with local counsel and we could do these all over the country. So that's kind of how it spread. So most of our national practice is related to the FTCA. And then our in-state practice is just catastrophic injury. So what are some of the challenges? You mentioned a, a couple briefly. Uh, so there's a limit on fees? There's a 25% cap on fees for the FTCA. Uh, so that's number one. Um, that's if you take it to, to court. If you settle it pre-suit, it's 20%. And so there's also an architecture set up, a pre-suit architecture that you have to follow. You have to file a Form 95 claim form. You have to go through an administrative pre-suit process for at least six months. You can't file it right away. Um, You have to cooperate with the government, even though they never do anything during that time period. Uh, And then there are a couple of different moving targets in terms of statutes of limitations. But then you can file. And then once you file, it has to be in federal court and it's mandated that it's a bench trial. So um, that that certainly presents its, its challenges. Your your attorneys that you're going against are the United States Attorney's Office. And one thing I learned the hard way when I took one of these on referral where someone else had already done the claim form is that your your damages are typically capped at the amount on the claim form. So if- and they're absolutely capped. Um, in fact, we had one birth injury case that was uh, referred to us 
and um, they put a, a a huge number on that form. But we ended up getting twice as much as that number at trial. Now, it wasn't their fault, the referring lawyer. It was too late for us to change the form. Right. And um, we we on Fifth Circuit just said, I'm sorry, you're back down to that number that was in that form. And uh, and so it was a real wake up call. So from then on, I mean, what I always tell everybody who has these cases, put a huge number. There's no downside. Yeah. They don't even care what that number is. Unless it's too low. They don't care if it's too high. It's not like they receive it and go, wait a second, Jamal's asking for $100 million. That's ridiculous. They don't even look at it until after you get a result. And then they all they care is, well, is that result higher than what they put in that box? And if it's not, they're like, shoot, we can't do anything about it. So It's not like they're going to settle the case with you prelude anyway. <laughs> no, hardly ever, especially on a very significant case. So tell me about the Sutherland Springs shooting first before we get to the case. Well, um, I always tell people this because you would think this would be a memorable event. And the tragedy of our country is it's very hard to remember. We have categories of mass shooting cases. Oh, but was that a church or was that a movie? Was that a concert or was that a, you know, wherever? And this one is um, on November 5th, 2017, a former Air Force service member walked into this small town. I mean, 200, 300 member town in the middle of nowhere between Austin and San Antonio. Um, One stoplight town walked into this small little house on the Prairie Church and within a few seconds shot and killed 26 members and injured 22. All ages, all backgrounds. Men, women, children, grandparents, um, including wiping out almost five generations of one family. Uh, Absolutely. One of the worst things I've ever heard about. It was captured on video. So it's one of the worst things I've ever seen. And one of the worst events I've ever heard described by the people who survived. And so, um, you know, the question is, how on earth did the federal government bear not only responsibility, but ultimately all the responsibility in, in our case for what happened. And you might remember I mentioned he was in the Air Force. And while he was in the Air Force, uh, the Air Force convicted him of multiple felonies, including domestic violence, beating up his wife and, and abusing his kid, stra- fracturing his kid's skull. And uh, put him in jail. And uh, most people may not know this, but there's a federal law that requires every single law enforcement agency and, and prosecutor who convicts somebody to enter those convictions into the FBI background check system. And that includes all the Air Force and military law enforcement organizations. Um, but they didn't do it for this guy. Uh, they didn't enter his background information. And he purchased a gun legally because of that failure at an academy store, the gun and ammunition and all the material he needed to commit this mass murder. And so that was the uh, primary legal reason why they were held liable. So I'm just trying to think, what are some of the legal challenges for, you know, getting the federal government liable and tort liability for someone failing to, you know, report uh, criminal convictions into the government database so they would be ineligible to buy firearms? So the the major thrust that we faced we faced 12B6 motions to dismiss on that issue. Um, and the government's main defense in that situation was, hey, listen, we cannot be held liable legally under the Federal Tort Claims Act uh, for this failure to follow 
federal law because there's no analogous state law duty in Texas that would make a private person liable. So that's a lot of words. Under the FTCA, the FTA says, hey, here's how the federal government is liable. We are saying that when they commit acts of negligence that are similar or analogous to acts of negligence that would make them liable if they were a private person in Texas, then you can sue them. So you just have to show that the the kind of negligence you're talking about here is the kind of negligence that if they were a private person, they, they could be held liable as well. So that was what the big fight was over. And then they also fought over foreseeability and proximate cause. But the real one was, is there a legal duty that you can be held liable for if, if you're the federal government? And, and the long story short is we, we said, of course there is. There's a, there's a whole list of federal cases out there um, that have held that the government is liable for these kinds of failures to report, these kinds of failures to act when you have a mandatory duty to act. Um, and uh, and so the, the judge sided with us on, on that. And then later, they tried to summary judgment us out on foreseeability and causation, which was a whole other fight that we won as well. Before we get to foreseeability, I mean, what excuse did they have for not reporting this? Well, at the end of the day, they didn't. One of the things we learned was and uncovered was there was a 30-year history of the federal government not reporting on a massive scale, not reporting felons to the background check system. And um, we had dug up various Department of Defense inspector general reports and various internal warnings that have been going on since the late 80s to the military. And I'm not talking about here or there. I'm talking at 30, 40, 50 percent failure rates, like just not doing it. And then we focused our discovery on the the little base in New Mexico where this the shooter resided and where he was convicted. And when we dug into what those offices and the, the law enforcement agency there had, their failure rate was even higher and they were just not trained properly. They had no, some of them didn't, some of the officers had no idea they were even required to report it, much less where to report it and how to submit the paperwork. Um, and then we found, discovered that there were internal checklists that actually had on the box, had on the checklist two boxes. Did you submit this to the FBI? Fingerprints and the conviction. Check yes or no. And they would check them and not submit them. They would oh, just, wow. They would, I called, told the judge, I said, this is just pencil whipping a checklist. This, this is what they were doing. And so um, that's what we learned. So the, the, when we dug down from the macro level, from the DOD level, all the way down to the, what are you doing in that office in New Mexico on that base? We just found a systemic uh, problem that had been going on for a very long time. One of the things, the last things I told the judge in the liability closing was this 30-year uh, negligence where the government just refuses to take accountability has to stop right now and it has to stop with you. Um, and that made it into his findings. So, Has the government done anything to fix this problem? Yes. One of the things that gave our families – a lot of comfort was before we even got the verdicts back. And I think, and I know because of this trial uh, and this, well, this litigation, we've confirmed that uh, a couple of things. The first thing is to our horror, we found out that the, just the air force alone, just the air force, remember there's the army doing this, the Navy doing this, the coast guard, but just the air force alone, which is one of the smaller, much smaller than the army. They had failed to report over 5,000 felons to wow. the background system. 
We learned that. And, and as a result of the litigation, they, we got all 5,000 of those phones back on the system. Um, and um, as a result of the litigation, the entire system of reporting and checklist system has been automized and modernized and from the DOD level. So every single branch of the military has a completely different system in place. In fact, it's a system that our experts recommended. Great. Um, And that's rare. You know this. We all know this as trial lawyers is we always feel good when we help a family, but we always wonder, is it serving the greater good? And we don't often know and we don't often get a case where we can say, we did something for the greater good. And I, I was sitting with a federal judge, friend of mine, in the middle of this litigation. He wasn't involved in the case. And I, I just mentioned that fact to him. And he just said, whoa, Jamal, stop right there. He said, if that's all you get done, how many times do you get to know that because of this litigation, an entire country has been made safer? And we talk about community safety all the time. We t- that's what our cases are about. But to be able to verify that on a national scale uh, was important because it was shocking to me that it wasn't done despite high-level investigations telling the military this has not been done. And I think the reason for it is that the federal government is not used to getting sued and they're not used to having their laundry aired in public like this. Um, and so I'm, I'm grateful that the judge first found for us on the motion dismissed because if he didn't, I don't think this would have happened. I don't think these changes would have happened. That's awesome. I'm, I'm undoubtedly someone's life is going to be saved for this. It has to be because there's we're t- if we're talking about because we know the Army and the Navy fixed it too. So if we're talking about five thousand felons not being reported and now are in the Air Force, you're talking double or triple that for the Army and the Navy. Um, and and these are people now that the ATF, especially recently with the higher budgets, been gained to the ATF. Every one of those folks who has tried to get guns who are felons now can be prosecuted. So there's, wow. a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of levels. It's not just preventing guns, but those who've purchased them can now be prosecuted um, and put in jail with, it's an automatic 10 year sentence. It's very easy. Oh, wow. Those. Yeah. So they said another issue was foreseeability. How did you show, I mean, I can see the defense arguing that, well, it's foreseeable that he'd beat his wife or beat his child, but how is it foreseeable that he'd go shoot up a church? I think this was, we were lucky on this one in terms of the evidence because this is not some magic that I did or any of us did. This was just gumshoe work and discovery. Um, what was very interesting to me in this case is I usually don't have huge discovery fights with the federal government. They're, they're, you're in federal court and the judge who's going to be your jury is the one ruling on motion. So you don't really want to hide stuff from the, your juror. You want to cooperate. So that's the upshot of it. Not in this case. The, the D.C. D- Department of Justice attorneys handled this case on the liability side, and they put up a huge stiff arm from the get-go. I couldn't even get mandatory Rule 26 witness lists, like people with personal knowledge they wouldn't give me because it went all the way up. There was a very high-level, you know, stars-on-your-shoulders type of people who were negligent here. Um, they wouldn't even give me the mandatory disclosures that are required by the federal rules. Um, they wouldn't give me any documents for months, any documents. And we had a early, uh, if I had to file a motion for sanctions, and I usually don't like doing that. I, I try my best to avoid it in federal court. Uh, go to the hearing. I didn't ask for sanctions. I could have, but I didn't. I just said, I just want the names and I want the documents and I need them now. And, uh, 
uh, we walk into the hearing, uh, all the lawyers on our side came. So it was full of the plaintiff's lawyers, looked like the entire San Antonio plaintiff's bar. And, um, and then the, the Washington lawyers came down and judge walks in, looks at the U.S. attorney and says, have you given Mr. Al-Safar the witnesses and the documents he asked for? And the U.S. attorney says, well, your honor, you know, before we do, and he goes, puts his hand up. He said, have you given Mr. Al-Safar the witness list and the documents under Rule 26? No, your honor, we haven't. And then he just says, I'm very angry. I need to cool off. Wow. I'm going to take a 10 minute recess. You need to call Department of Justice right now in Washington and get me an answer on whether or not you're going to do this. And I'll give you 10 minutes. And he walked out. <laughs> And, you know, I hadn't said anything. <laughs> and I've never had that happen in a federal hearing. Um, he comes back. They said we talked to our folks in D.C. and they they said no. And he said, OK, I'm going to sanction you. And and that hardly ever happens in federal court. It really doesn't happen. It doesn't happen without me saying a word. I didn't even ask for sanctions. Um, and he said, Mr. Alspar, how many of these folks sitting behind you are representing the plaintiffs. I said, well, you're on all of them. <laughs> There's a lot of lawyers yeah. in this case. And he said, okay, well, go ahead and submit their hourlies for how long they worked on, you know, this motion and how long they've had to sit here. Um, and I'll uh, sanction the government for all your billing for, you know, for that. So, you know, and of course they, they turned over the information and then we were off to the races. And once we got that information, we realized why they were holding it back so, so much because the, the level of negligence and how high it went all the way up to the secretary of the air force. And so, um, I think that their hope was, look, we just got to keep this as long as we can from them because once they do the dam will open. Um, so in answer to your question, well, how did you foreseeability in the shooting? That was a big issue. And, and really what we found out was it was really kind of mind blowing, Michael, because not only did this, they know this guy was violent. Those domestic violent crimes were committed with guns Oh, wow. With guns. It's just the beginning. He had been institutionalized in a mental hospital by the Air Force twice, including for you trying to use a gun to kill himself. While in the mental hospital, he was uh, we learned that we, we got the discovery of his um, computer searches while in the hospital. We found out that he was searching on the Internet how to commit a mass shooting and how to get weapons body armor, tactical clothing, all this stuff. So we got that information. And then the gov- we found the government actually knew about that. They knew about those threats. And then he had threatened twice to commit a mass shooting on the base. Wow. To his superior commanders. Um, so we understood why they kept this from us and we had to fight for it because that is not only, I mean, I believe that because he had committed violence, and then obviously he'd used a gun and threatening. That was enough. But we also discovered that he was institutionalized while threatening to make a mass shooting and planning one. He was planning one. He tried to plan one after they released him. Was this a random shooting or did he know people in that church? It's a great question because it was not random. It was a week with the judge found it was an act of domestic violence. Um, one of the things we we learned was um, we hired the uh, top gun violence expert in the country. He runs the Johns Hopkins Gun Violence Research Center for the uh, NIH. And, um, and one of the things he told us was one of the most foreseeable mass shooting people are 
two factors, ex-military and history of domestic violence. The, the percentage of mass shooters in, that, that have been documented uh, as being both ex-military and, and domestic violence abusers is close to like 50%. It's really high. Wow. So, um, so in terms of uh, the randomness of it, that church is where his wife grew up in. His wife had threatened to divorce him a few weeks and a few days before the shooting. And his wife's mother was a very high level member of that church. And that church was sort of his wife's sanctuary. That's where she would go to escape him. And he had threatened violence against his wife's mother shortly before the mass shooting. So he viewed that church as the place that was where my wife was going to go to get away from me. And I cannot let that happen. Um, so th- it was not a random act either. It was actually related to the very thing the Air Force convicted him of. Yeah. And to report on. That makes a lot more. The foreseeability, I didn't know enough about the case. The foreseeability is something I'd, I'd wondered about. So... Tell me about, first of all, what was it like? Well, first of all, how did you become the lead lawyer? There's a ton of plaintiff lawyers on this case. <laughs> no. Well, I think the answer to your question is probably what you said at the beginning. Could you please tell me what, what on earth is the FTCA? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I think that there was not a lot of experience in the FTCA, and I just had a, an unusual amount of it. And um, and I know a couple of the lawyers approached me and said, Jamal, uh, and I know Dan, uh, one of the local lawyers too, said, you know, I, I, I know you've done a lot of this work. Um, so I, I really, it's a great question because despite all of that, there, there are, like I said, the, the list of lawyers on this case on my side are, are far better than me and um, really skilled. And, and they're usually the ones managing these big toxic cases or these big mass tort cases. And the question why me is, I think, first of all, I didn't ask to be. I didn't ask to be. I didn't ask for any kind of common fee either. My main purpose was I really think we can win the federal case. And a lot of people didn't agree with me. And I just said, I really think we can. I think it's our best one. And I think if we and I so I just sort of at the very beginning laid out, I didn't decide to file this case, my claims until I knew I thought I could win. So I'd already really thought out the plan. I was like, here's what we need to do in the next year. Here's how we need to make sure we make the pleadings and write them in a way so that we avoid all the traps the government's going to bring up for immunity defenses. Um, and, and these are my thoughts. And here's my plan. And I think that helped. I think that was like, well, I don't have anything to say against that. And I, you know, a lot of these things people hadn't even thought of because, you know, it is a very unique area. And we had to make sure our pleadings did not plead us accidentally into all these exceptions to the FTCA. So I made sure that we approached it from that standpoint. I, I, I volunteered to draft the complicated pleadings first. It's uh, well before they, we were required to file them. And I just did the work early on. And I think that that gave them a lot of confidence. Um, and then, you know, I kind of, I, I like to think, you know, I, one of the things I love doing is I love coaching. I'm a licensed coach and I coach all my kids and I've been a coach for almost 13 straight years and oh, wow. sports and in particular soccer. So, um, and I love all these coach, I've taken professional licensing classes and I love them because they're a lot like our CLEs, Michael. They're a lot neuroscience and how to psychologically motivate people and how to get people to listen, you know, and how to 
how to not tell people what to do, but have them come to you, which is what we do with juries, right? And I just was like, this is just like trying a case, <laughs> motivating, motivating kids, keeping parents happy, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so I kind of found that my my natural coaching experience and, and the way I led my team and I led the group like I coach. I was, you know, I listened. I try to communicate clearly in understandable language. Uh, I try to communicate regularly and um, and I try to um, not boss my way into the conversations. I tried to make sure I gave them what I thought was the right thing and then listen to their response and respond, and which is what I do when I coach. And and I think it really put everybody at ease that that I wanted to do right for everyone. And that was also important is I did not focus just on the clients that I had. I focused, I tried to focus on the overall goal of helping everybody at once. And, and so I think, I think that that helped, that helped. Yeah. I think your experience in actually trying bench trials against the federal government too, and how to advocate damages to a federal judge, as opposed to you know, a jury of tw- six or 12, um, probably gave you a, an experience or at least gave other people a comfort level with you. Cause I think to me, you know, it's one thing to try a single plaintiff federal tort claims that case, but to try one that, that's this massive and having, if you haven't done it before, that has to be frightening. Listen, and I want to tell you the truth here. It's not like I had any experience in doing a mass casualty federal tort claim case. This is actually one of the most unique trials that's ever been done in the history of the FTCA. You, you cannot find many that are done like this. Um, there's very few models. Um, and so it really was interesting because you know, when we want it, when we talk about the actual damages trial portion of it, that was a whole unique challenge. Of how do we do this with a federal judge? Now, I had a ton of experience with serious cases with federal judges in bench trials, but but putting all of those together into one was a unique challenge that none of us had really had. Now, some of us have had similar state cases, but to do it in a federal setting was unique. And I couldn't come in and say, "I've done oh, I've done a mass casualty FTCA case." I I hadn't. Um, and so, and I, and I was fine with admitting that. I think part of that was just like, here's what I'm good at. Here's what I know what to do. Here are my ideas. You tell me on this issue how the best way you think to do it is. And I think that helped. I think people, you know, my biggest goal was I need to build trust. And, uh, and I think I was able to do that by being honest about what I could do and what I could not do. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to delisi at cowanlaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at cowanlaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. How did you manage this, I guess, communications and egos with that many, you know, alpha trial lawyers in one case? (laughs) I was joking with a judge friend of mine because he asked me that question. And I said, that's really probably the one thing I, I it was, I don't want to say hardest, but most challenging because I have to admit, I have to say that the folks I worked with that have great experience and, and, and have every right to believe they know what they're doing because their results have been amazing is that they were very 
we obviously had our disagreements and we at times, um, especially when we got to damages because everyone, boy, that's where you really show your stuff, right? And I have to say that it was really probably much more cooperative than I expected. And I think maybe the reason for that was that I tried to win from, I tried to have this case, you know, win before you begin. I really tried to have it lined up so that the strategies were in place, the rules I was using. I mean, heck, I still use the rules of the road type approach. You know, I had all those done and ready before the, before the complaint was filed and um, really had a strategy of how to approach. Because I did, along with my partner, Tom Jacobs, I need to mention him because he and I tried and litigated most of the case and did most of the depositions. We really had a game plan. And I think once five or six of those were done and we started seeing that, hey, they're locking the case in, it was sort of, well, let's not screw this up. Yeah. And so I had a lot of trust at the beginning. And then when we had the 12B6 motion practice, I think that's when we locked it in. I think that's when they said, you know what, you really handled this well. You know, the U.S. brought the associate attorney general of the United States down to argue against me in the 12B6. And and we just were really well locked in. And he came up to me after the hearing before the judge ruled and said, well, you really kicked my ass today. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, "Okay, good. Everyone heard that. That's what I needed. So I had a, I had once that was trust was built. Um, like I said, I don't think there's any replacement for doing the work and showing people you're doing the work and then trying to honestly communicate regularly. I, we had a lot of communication and I think that there was not a lot of surprises. I was um, I really tried to uh, we emailed frequently with status updates. I emailed frequently with I held a lot of joint calls regularly. Um, and I, and I tried to, when I communicated, I tried to say, here's what I think is going to happen. And then generally that would happen. So again, I think that built up trust. Okay. It seems like, you know, they've kind of figured out how this is going to go. Um, and then once the liability trial came, Michael, I mean, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of documents and they kind of knew, well, you and Tom have been the ones who know these without even thinking about it. It's probably better that you handle all the Experts. So one thing we didn't do, by the way, which I thought was great, we did not depose any of their government's experts. We went with no depositions, and that really worked out well because I knew they wouldn't settle. I knew they wouldn't settle. I knew there was nothing to be gained by having a good deposition other than letting them know how I was going to attack them. Um, and because I had the certainty and clarity that they would never offer a dime <laughs> before the liability <laughs> trial – it was it was actually a relatively simple decision, and it was, it, which I I don't say easily because I I really do do that on a case by case basis, and uh, um, it turned out to work very well. They had no idea where we we're coming from at trial. And is that the advantage of not deposing the defense experts? Is you're not giving away your your trial strategy? Yeah, and you know what's interesting is that I say that despite the fact that we had an enormous amount of motion practice, and I actually filed and won a partial summary judgment. I did that because I'm like, that's my judge, that's my jury. I want him to see the evidence before trial. I want him to know we're going to come in ready to bear. And he actually ruled in our favor on partial summary judgment. Um, so they had, they knew what I thought was important. But my partner Tom and I made a very calculated decision that even though we had a lot in summary, because they filed a motion for summary judgment in response. And so we had to respond to that. So it was just a cavalcade, an avalanche of documents, right? We really intentionally kept out some real bombs from what we had milled in the documents 
from the judge and saved them for trial. So the ones that were, and when I say bombs, I'm talking things that, and I know this gets into a little bit of the liability trial itself, but one of the things I was concerned about was we had fought so hard on the motion practice. We had shown the judge so much of our hand in terms of what our documents were, and they did as well. I was a little concerned that, that he would be bored. Yeah. <laughs> that it wouldn't be, be like, I've seen this before. So we really made a calculated decision to pull back some really big, big documents that we knew would be very helpful. So we knew we had enough to get beyond the, you know, the fact question. And so the stuff that really hit them hard on foreseeability and causation, our plan was every single day of the liability trial, we would drop anywhere between two to four new documents or facts he had never seen that were eye popping. Um, Like one of which was we had subpoenaed or we had requested in production the uh, security logs for all the bases around the country. Uh, on a certain time period, because we uh, we had learned that this shooter had tried after he had been kicked out of the military. He had been banned by the entire military from entering any base. So we knew in order for that to happen, they'd have to have a security log which listed him as a, you know, do not enter guy. And that his ID, uh, if he tried to access a base, his ID would show up on the database. So um, we we requested all that information. So we got back that this guy who had, remember, threatened a mass shooting on base and threatened to kill Air Force members in a mass shooting, had tried not only to reenter the base they had evicted him from in New Mexico multiple times after he was let out and convicted, but that um, not long before the shooting, he had tried to enter the San Antonio Air Force Base. And the military in response had heightened his security alert status. So we had this document that they had never seen. Well, they didn't know. They just there's so many documents, right? They just didn't right. know this. Their experts had never seen it. Um, and so when we dropped it on the judge while we were cross-examining their experts, the judge just stopped. Every time we talked to him, said, tell me the document number, the exhibit number. Tell me the date on that document and tell me the time on that document. Yeah. And then I would start asking and he'd say, Jamal, Mr. Alsford, can you stop? Tell me the date on that document. Tell me the exhibit number, the time, you know, of course, which you're just like, obviously, this judge is very, very engaged. Yeah. The other thing that we discovered and that we left for trial was we uh, had discovered that through his mental health file that the government, when they investigated him for his conviction, had learned that he had... Um, he had raped uh, seven women. Oh, my gosh. And that he uh, that two of them were while he was in the Air Force. And so they had all this information on him. And so their experts hadn't reviewed this and they hadn't they didn't know this. And so they were saying there's no foreseeability that this guy <laughs> would commit this kind of act. He was a, such a deviant criminal that they knew about. And the, our theme was because the government was trying to say, you can't hold us liable. This guy's a monster. And so our theme was he was a monster, but he was a monster that you knew better than anyone else, even more than his family knew. And you let him loose. And so the fact that the Air Force and the military had actually banned him and protected themselves, the judge actually said this in the middle of the trial. He just said, you know, you guys keep saying that it wasn't foreseeable, but the plaintiffs just showed that 
not only did you protect everyone on base in New Mexico, you protected the entire Air Force and every base around the country from this guy. But you didn't protect any of us. I mean, that's what he said. Wow. You talk about it. I mean, that was our theme. You know, the Air Force cared more about protecting themselves than they did about us. And that I mean, he parroted it, which but he was correct to. So the, one of our approaches our one of our biggest approaches that I found successful is that sort of holding back those documents every day and making sure that every day and by the second or third day, everyone in the courtroom staff, including him, you could tell they're like, what are Tom and Jamal going to tell us today that we didn't? And um, and that was really that was really uh, helpful. Even our own co-counsel were like, I didn't know that. Oh, what are y'all going to, and one, a couple of days towards the end of the liability trial, they would come up to us and go, what are you going to do today? What are you going <laughs> to You haven't seen. And so that was really, um, again, you know, even though it's a federal bench trial, I thought it was very important that the judge be just as engaged as I would want my jury to be engaged as well. So. Yeah, I don't think that's something uh, that we forget sometimes. It's not just about the facts. It's about keeping the fact finder, you know, somewhat entertained and engaged in part of the process. And this judge didn't want us to use any demonstration. I mean, I, Michael, you should see. I love using. I love using a combination of technology and boards. Right. right. I love. Using, I love to be able to hold something. I love to draw. I love to write something, and I love to be able to get up and walk over and point at something. So. I had the some of the best demonstrative boards I'd ever done in terms of timelines, in terms of rules, and in terms of some of the facts that sort of proved our, our essential case. Just really beautifully done. I was really happy with him. And he wouldn't let us use most of them except for one, um, which was weird. And the one we, he did let us use was the timeline. And it was all factual. Everything was factually based. And it was just a beautiful timeline showing sort of the progression of his madness that the Air Force knew about combined with the aggressiveness of his weapons purchase as that got worse um, and how each one of those weapons purchases would have been caught by the system had they reported and would have been subjected himself to law enforcement prosecution. In fact, one of the things that we draw, I've got to tell the story. I'm sorry. This yeah, is just, tell it, please. <laughs> so, because I'd forgotten about it. One of those pieces I'm telling you about of evidence is we had third party requested production of uh, the Comal County Sheriff Department's video file because we had learned right before the shooting, three days before the shooting, uh, there was some kind of disturbance or something on his property out in New Braunfels. That's where the shooter lived with his family. And so the Comal, the Sheriff's Department went there, had their body cams on and interviewed this guy three days before the shooting. So we subpoenaed the, the recordings and there's on the video, the shooter is arguing with the cops aggressively. You know, they were just there to, to it was something minor. Right. But, you know, what do police officers do every time they go visit a person that they don't know about? They what do they get in their car and they look up the system? Well, if they Air Force had reported these convictions, they would have said, oh, this guy I'm about to go see is a felon. So he's not supposed to have any guns. All right. So that's the backdrop. Right. So the, the police officers show up. They the shooter comes out, argues with them. It's kind of aggressive. It's like, I don't like cops. I don't talk to cops. All this stuff that would put any police officer red alert. Then this guy, the shooter says, oh, by the way, and he taps his right hand on video, goes, taps his hip, goes, I'm carrying two. <laughs> so, which is fine, right? It's not illegal to carry, he, you know, but the point is, if that conviction had been reported, they would have said, oh, this guy's a felon. He's not allowed to have a gun. Yeah, I say it was illegal for him to carry. They just it didn't was. know it. And the moment he did this on camera, and so we froze that 
when he did that, we've circled it in red. And he's like, that was the moment he gets arrested and is an automatic 10-year conviction. It's not even close. It's an open and shut case. He's admitted it. But obviously, they didn't do anything because they're like, okay, I mean, you've got to yeah. – you're allowed to. So um, that was one of those sort of bombs that we dropped, right? That was one of those facts that sort of – you know, that day was just like, oh, my – this is just – this is ridiculous. This is insane how many – which is just really another thing to always remember is really mine for discovery. You never know, you know, because that was a third party discovery. We had learned, you know, through the other records that, oh, there was a, some kind of visitor disturbance call. Well, let's go contact that sheriff's department. Let's subpoena the records. Oh, it looks like they had a camera. Let's go ahead and subpoena the camera. You know, I mean, those kinds of things that, yeah. you know, you kind of have to go to get that information. But that was just uh, that was just yet another, I think, effective demonstrative that we broke down and used to to show the opportunities here that had the air force done its job. So tell me, how was the trial broken up? So we were, we were bifurcated. So the liability trial was, um, in April of last year. And that was about a month, a month and a half. And then the judge took a couple months to do the findings and enter his judgment, uh, in our favor. And he found the government 60% liable. So they're a hundred percent responsible for the damages. And then he, two months later set, the trial date for the damages trial. And that was a whole nother issue because then he said, now, Mr. Alsfar, I want you and the U.S. attorneys to get together and figure out how to present this case efficiently damage-wise. Because there were like 90 family members. Wow. Um, and uh, and I said, okay. So the government comes back and says, this trial will take six months. I come back and say, I can do it in a month, Your Honor. And then, of course, they laugh and the judge is like, how the hell are you going to do this Yeah, in a month? So what was interesting was, and so he said it, Long story short, he kind of said, I'm Mr. Alsfar, I'm going to give you your shot because <laughs> yeah. I knew a couple of things. He didn't want a six month trial. We were in the middle of COVID. So we had done our liability trial, half hybrid in person, half by Zoom. So I was there the whole time mass. We had, you know, plexiglass everywhere. Witnesses had to be, you know, brought in one individually. No one could come stack the courtroom. It was only the lead lawyers and the witnesses. The witness had a plexiglass. Everyone had to wear a mask, take it off when you talk. You know, you couldn't use a podium, all this stuff. You've been through this before, too. Um, and then we had some of the witness come in through Zoom while we were in the courtroom. Some of the witnesses were live. So that was an all challenge. The good thing is I have an incredible team. Race Hipsa does all of my trials uh, and they're, they're technology geniuses. So we went through a lot of practice sessions to, to the point where, the court was just using our guys and our race ips and our team to manage everything. I mean, he was just totally relying on us to make sure it went, which is really great because that I think increased the trust factor. Um, and then I worked out a plan, which was very difficult, but I worked out a plan, which is really critically important to figure out which witnesses are the ones we really needed to call to prove our extraordinary damages case and which ones we didn't need to call. Um, and so I had every attorney sit down and go, you got to pick two to three people from each family and that's it. And so we've got to cross fertilize. Um, you know, we had a lot of people who were not family members who were in the church who had to, who witnessed some of the damages of the other plaintiffs. So we had to really cross reference a lot of people. And then in terms of fact witnesses and the, the, the witnesses that were going to prove the loss and the injury, 
I was like, you got to limit it to two or three. Otherwise, we're never going to get this done in a month. And we've got to put them on and off in no more than an hour, even the main plaintiffs. Because I did the math. I'm like, we get six hours of real trial a day, which is bench trial. You do. You don't have any breaks for jury breaks. You just have two breaks a day and that's it. Like we get six hours with the number of people we have. And then we have all our experts. So it's not just the members. It's the experts, too. The life care planners, you know, the damage experts, the neurologists, all that. Um, We have to be very, very, very efficient. So that was really hard. Um, And then the Delta virus hit. (laughs) (laughs) And so luckily the boosters had come around. Um, I had a lot of recalcitrant plaintiffs and rural Texas and say no more. And maybe weren't in favor of shots. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just leave it at that. I live in that county. So believe me, I know. Yeah. So the government was like, we don't want to do this trial because not everyone's going to be boosted and we don't want to catch COVID. You know, they were using COVID as a way to delay it even more. So I volunteered to set up a COVID treating center, <laughs> testing oh, wow. center a testing center in an extra conference room in the federal courthouse in San Antonio. And I didn't know what I was doing. I just said, your honor, if I promise you, I will set up, we will have my team set up a testing center and we will test everyone 15 minutes before they walk in the courtroom. And I will not allow anyone to come in who has a positive test. And he just, he, he was like, will you be willing to do that? And I said, you know, I'm telling you, I will do that. I will figure it out. I will show you the tests. I will do the tests you want us to do. We even talked about that. This is the trying cases in the time of COVID, <laughs> talking about the, the, the quality of COVID tests. And again, I think I did that for because I wanted to find any reason I could to make sure these families got their trial heard. But I cared about the judge trusting us, too. And I was like, listen, yeah. these are valid concerns. I have these concerns and I don't want to make anyone else sick. So we'll do these this little extra mile. So we had in a room next to us. I mean, it was hilarious. If you walked in, Michael, in, the, in one of the conference rooms next to the courtroom, it was just a long table with all these testing kits laid out. That, and we had a person or two always in there and we would, you know, I'd get a call. Clients here, I said, shuffle them to the COVID room <laughs> and they would get their test. They'd come back with the negative and I would say, your honor, okay, they're negative. And then, and, and I, and he really appreciated that. He's no one had ever done that. And of course, you know, there's not a lot of experience here on this. So um, that's also what was so unique about it is we got through the first one with COVID and then a new strain hit. And then we had to figure out a way to make everyone comfortable in that way too. So we were able to do it all the while having to tell these terribly hard stories. Yeah. Like how do you tell, you know, I, 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 I related it to what these people went through in this, this church room, the size of this church, Michael was, uh, I actually measured the courtroom that we were trying the case in before the damages trial. And I, I, and I, I went back to the church itself. It's, it had been preserved where, and it had been whitewashed literally to clean off all the blood and the brain matter and the body matter. It was awful, but it was preserved as a memorial. So I spent a lot of time in a few weeks before the damages trial, just sitting where my clients were sitting and, um, and just spent a day sitting in that chapel, trying to, you know, experience what they went through as best I could, because I hadn't been there in a little while. And, you know, the thought hit me, how do I make him understand what it must have felt like? And, um, you know, we had all of how we we're going to do it. So I measured the church sanctuary and I said, this feels like the size of our courtroom. It's not big at all. It's tiny. And I think this place might be smaller than our actual courtroom. So I had the Texas Ranger, who's one of our main witnesses, measure the courtroom and then measure the church. And they were almost identically the same size. Wow. 
almost and if you think about a church and a courtroom, they're very similarly laid out. You have pews in a church, you have pews in a courtroom. The judge sits up high on his pedestal. The pastor sits up high behind their pedestal when they give their sermon. And in this case, the first shots that came through from the outside of the building were aimed at the at the head of the church, aimed at the at where the pastor spoke, which is where, uh, you know, frankly, where the judge speaks or where we're standing at our podium. So there was a real pall when we introduced the room to the judge, right? Um, there was a real sense of, Every time the door opened in the courtroom, people were kind of edgy because they had been they were they were put into that courtroom because where the door was in the church is the same location where the door is in the courtroom to walk. Oh, in. wow. And so it was very, very much. We, you need to understand the space as much as we can, because we have these bystander claims. Right. These these children and these people that survived witnessed and went through this trauma. And even those that died lived several, some lived several minutes through multiple rounds of him coming in and out. And they had, and they were trapped animals. It was, I, I, I described it. I said, your honor, this wasn't just a war zone. This was a war zone in a close combat, tiny house. That that's how you have to think about it. It's not in an open area. It is close combat warfare that these children and these people went through and saw, and they had nowhere to go. They had no escape. And so, one of the things that was um, that I thought would be good to talk about was just sort of how did we present that? Because I didn't want to make it. I didn't want to overdo it, but he needed to understand what these people went through. We had a video. There was a video close, uh, you know, they had videoed the ser- service. There was a video camera going on and the shooting went in and I decided not to use it. And I did not enter it into evidence because I thought it's, I actually told the judge that the government actually thought I was going to enter it. They just were like convinced, well, Jamal is going to just make this a gore fest. Yeah. So I, I chose I, I, all the evidence of the people after the shooting, their bodies, the autopsy pictures, the or the pictures that were taken at the scene, which were horrific. I put under seal and I said, I don't I told the judge, you look at it when you want to, but I'm not going to show any of these things in trial. The government was convinced I was going to enter the video and I didn't. And I told them I wouldn't. And I kept telling them I wouldn't. They just didn't believe me. And then the, the day before trial, they moved to have that video entered into evidence, not me. Oh, wow. And I objected. And I said, Judge, you don't need to see. You know what happened. You don't need to see it. We'll do our job. We'll put you through it. But I said, frankly, I've seen it and I've seen it a lot. And it's not OK. You are going to be living with these images for the rest of your life. And I don't think you or your staff need to go through that. They still moved it. And, they, and the judge was like, well, I guess I have to because it is evidence. So, wow. you know, and I said, well, Your Honor, I want it under seal. I don't want any media seeing it. I don't want these family members seeing it because I kept it for my family members. Yeah. And, and so what happened was, from my perspective, I thought this was a big misstep. I said, you got now the government has forced this into evidence. And I'm like, you don't need to see it. So what I did instead was I used the stills bef- right before the shooting. So nothing from the shooting, but right, right literally a second or two before the shooting, I just took stills of the community. It was such a loving space the second before it turned into hell. It was 
kids running around and laughing. It was children hugging other constituents. It was constituents, you know, all of them hugging, parishioners hugging each other and, and laughing and singing. And so those, those stills I showed as a, this is the dramatic turn this thing took. And this is, you know, and it, and, and then we had the nine 11, there were a ton of nine one one calls. So I, I did audibly, I put the audio in and then we had pictures. We had a lot of pictures of what the church looked like afterwards, after the bodies had been removed, all the body fluids, all the 500 bullet holes in the pews. And, and then I brought the actual bullets that I had the Rangers sort of dramatically bring the bullets and show them because I wanted the judge to know these bullets are not little pellets. These are specifically designed to do massive damage to the body and to do it in a in, in fast, high impact way. And so he was handling the actual bullets taken from people's bodies. But we never showed, you know, so we, we put him. So what I wanted to do was I thought it was very important for him to understand the sights, the sounds and then the smells. Um, the, the Texas Ranger who headed this investigation was maybe one of the most impactful damage witnesses because not only could he describe the aftermath, but this dude, this guy's ahead of the Texas Rangers. He's seen cartel stuff, which is about as bad as it gets. But this scene he walked into, he said was the worst in his life. And when I just asked him, tell me what you saw when you opened the door to the church, just tell us what you saw. He started crying, this hard, tough, and he just sobbed. He just couldn't stop. And I just, I mean, it was, it was, you know, this is the Texas Ranger, head of the Texas Rangers. Um, and, and it was really impactful. And then when I had the, the real hard part was how did you prepare the plaintiffs who were in the church? And it was important to me that we, we made it simple, but straightforward. So I, I, I really tried to draft a very simple, but detailed enough outline for everybody so that we could follow a framework of let's just use a couple of pictures to show him where they were sitting. Let's spend a few minutes on the scene before and then what they heard and smelled and saw after, because it was really remarkable. Each person you talked to saw, heard, smelled, saw something so different and so just crushing. Hmm. And then we transitioned into, all right, tell me about, you know, the pain and suffering after and then the sort of losses, um, wrongful death losses. And we just used the it was really important that we knew it was a federal bench trial. So let's use the jury charge. Let's make sure that each I just had an outline that had each of the actual jury charge elements spelled out. So make sure you hit these points. And here are the five or six leading cases that show you the facts that the appellate courts like to hear to support these, these kinds of damages. And so we really had a very, cause I told the judge one hour or less for each of these. And, it, and I was like, we are not going to violate that. And of course, everybody was like, I don't know that I can do that. And, and so I was like, well, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to have to structure these in a certain way. I'm not going to tell you what to ask, but we're going to structure it this very specific way so that we hit those points yeah. and that you can do. It. And we ended up doing it. It was really wonderful to see everybody come together because at the damages trial, I could only put on my clients and the other lawyers did put on their clients. So I was really concerned that we'd have one lawyer taking two hours and then another three, yeah. you know, doing their own thing. And in the end, everyone, we were able to, again, this goes back to coaching, communicating, organizing. We went over it and over and over beforehand and we made sure that the 
plan was agreed upon and that it was stuck to. And man, these guys, these lawyers did it in their own unique way, but, but really we followed the plan and it really, I think it really, um, was, uh, really impactful without being too much, if that makes sense, right? Just the right amount while creating a record. Now, my least favorite part of a trial is waiting afterwards. Um, for the verdict. And, and and the really part I hate is the time between when the judge says you have a verdict and the time they read it. Um, yeah. You know, that's that's to me the only stressful time uh, anymore. But how long did you have to wait? Oh, that, well, you want to talk about waiting. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the thing that's the hardest about federal FTCA cases is it's months. It's not I mean, it's not it's long time. And so, you know, the the hardest one in this one, Michael, is a liability one because that's I don't know if I we won for these families and I don't know if we won enough percentage so that we could yeah. have meaningful damages trial. That one was the hardest because it took several it took three two to three months, which by the way is quick for a federal judge. Yeah, they and, and the reason it takes so long is they sub, they write out their opinion a hundred page plus opinion. We submit post trial. Uh, findings. So we write out or we wrote out a long post-trial findings that cited only the record. So we get the entire record transcript and then we file our findings of fact after the trial that just documents everything based on the actual record. And um, and then the judge takes a couple of months. So it is hard. You get an indication like I felt like I'd won. But the thing I did really didn't know was, is he going to find a, the government 30 percent, 20, 40 um, we really wanted it and thought it should have been over 51 and, and it was, and that was the right thing to do. But so that was hard because yeah. you find out through an email. <laughs> yeah. And just for the listeners from other states, uh, Texas, 51% or more, you have joint and several liability. And, yeah. Yes, of course. So we were, we, you know, I suggested 70, 30 and they suggested zero, Yeah, which was a mistake. They should not have done that. They should have accepted some responsibility. But in any event, he had what he needed to find the right decision. And so when they, he came down in 60, that was what we needed. And, and um, so for the liability one, it was really hard because, you, you know, you, you get notified by an e-notification and you open the document and you go right to the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so the moment the email came in, I was just off my desk and I, I, I'd walk back to my desk. And my Slack channel for my Sutherland Springs trial team was blowing up, you know, oh, I'm on page 10. Wait, what is it? And I'm just like, oh, my God, the verdict's in. That's how I found out. Off yeah. the Slack. <laughs> in the what was the damages verdict? It was two hundred and thirty million. Wow. From a federal judge. Yeah. You know, in, in, in that sound, I'm not, I'm not going to be one of those guys that I'm like, oh, I'm disappointed in the number. It was actually a really reasonable number because, you know, we only had we had 19 of the 26 who were killed were in the case. And then uh, the same number for those that were injured. Um, and so when you break it down individually, he really put it squarely in what is considered reasonable ranges for deaths and injury. Um, not as much as we wanted, but uh, 10 times as much as they wanted. But it was, but for me, um, when they, when everyone asked me, what do you think the verdict's going to be? I said, I think it's going to be somewhere between 225 and 250. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and they were like, why, you know, I, you, you, I think we're going to get, and I said, no, 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 because I think that it's really important for the judge to not be anywhere close to an outlier 
He's worried about the Fifth Circuit. And if he comes somewhere in that range, there's really nothing they can say about the reasonableness of the verdict. Yeah. I mean, of course, it's a lot of money. Of course, it's one of the largest that I think the government has had to pay. Uh, but when you look at what happened and you look at the damage and the evidence we put on, that's really what's key is his findings. You look at the evidence we put on, it's it's absolutely reasonable. So I think yeah. from that perspective, he could have gone, you know, several million per each one, I think, and still totally been within what I think would have been a protected record. But it was to him, I think it was very important that he got a number that he thought could easily be secured on appeal. And I think he did that. And is it going up on appeal or? Well, we're, we're, they're on the clock. Okay. They're on the clock and they have settled a, a few cases, mass shooting cases that are not as large as this one. This is the only one that's been tried to verdict. Um, and so we're just waiting. The, the The level at which this is handled, this is handled by the Solicitor General and the Attorney General of the U.S. That's where the decision will be made. And that's so it's a pretty high level. And I think, you know, one of the interesting things about this is that um, the way the government looks at their case is a lot different than the way private parties look at their exposure, right? I mean, the federal government's the biggest corporation in the world. Um, in fact, one of the U.S. attorneys used that quote on me in uh, deposition, and I, I used it against him in a hearing. But it's true. I mean, they make decisions primarily based on long-term exposure to legal issues rather than, oh, am I going to have stockbroker revolt? Am I going to have right. you know, insurance questions? You know, they don't make decisions the same way that private companies do. And the thing that I'm most comfortable about is that the way we handled the legal issues early on and the way the judge particularly handled them, he is a conservative judge. He's a Republican judge which is fine because some of the best judges I've ever had in these bench trials have been conservative, but he is a law follower and he is a good legal mind and yeah. uh, he is very well respected at the Fifth Circuit as he should be. And so I felt when we drew, because we just drew him blindly, I said, you know, I think this is a good thing because I think we're right. And this judge is going to preserve this record properly. And he's not going to vote. He's not going to find for us unless we are absolutely right on the law. And if we can get this judge writing that opinion, we know it'll be the well, the most well-researched, well-written and well-founded opinion. And I think that that's what we got. That's awesome. Well, I hope you all keep it. And I hope the government continues to do the right thing and actually, you know, follow its own rules and keep these convicted felons from buying guns um, and that you get some kind of peace for the families. Thank you. And let me add one thing, because I think that's a really good point, because, you know, we all talk about, do these things work? Do these laws work? And I can tell you one of the most interesting things about this case was we cross-examined at trial the head of the FBI who runs the criminal justice background check system. So the head of the FBI, the director for that section. And one of the things that was clear as day, and it was important, I think, to the judge as well, is that these background check systems work. They work at a very, very high level um, of keeping guns out of the hands of felons. And everyone says, well, it's so easy to get a gun. Well, the bottom line is this, is that these criminals want to get guns the easiest way they can. And when you put up hurdles, it really keeps guns out of these folks' hands if you follow the law and report these folks. 
And one of the uh, most interesting things in this trial was having the head of the FBI being asked by the U.S. attorney to essentially throw the FBI background system <laughs> to the bus. <laughs> Our cross was like a direct. This is a great program, isn't it? You've, you've just in this year alone prevented a million felons from getting guns. And she's just up there on the stand, Michael, reluctantly agreeing <laughs> that her department is really good at what they do. Um, and the judge sniffed that out right away. And in fact, after she was done, said, I find it very unusual that the federal government is trying to argue that their own system doesn't work when their own FBI director is clearly <laughs> having a difficult time with that notion. Yeah. So, you know, again, credibility, credibility. Yeah. And for those of us that, you know, like to own guns, but don't particularly like the idea of crazy people with felony convictions next door owning guns, it feels good. How about crazy people who have been institutionalized, have committed felons, and have threatened to commit mass shootings? Yeah. I think we all can agree on that. <laughs> I think you and I can agree on that. <laughs> not sure everyone in Texas would agree well, on that. Well, you'd be surprised. I think if you, if you <laughs> yeah, we knew you at least stack it up that much probably so. <laughs> well, it was great talking to you. I look forward to, to meeting you in person sometime soon. And uh, great no, work. Not. Not just having the courage to take on a, a tough case, a case that, frankly, I wouldn't have had the courage to take on, but then doing incredible work and getting an incredible victory. Thank you. Well, let me just tell my wife, it was my wife's idea, Laurie Hagenbotham, and she, my partner, and uh, she told me to do it. So I just listened to what she said, like I told you at the beginning. She's yeah. the boss, so I did it. <laughs> I want to do a whole other podcast with you on practicing with your wife, because that's something you I don't think you I could do. I think that would be another one, but we'll we'll schedule that one in the future. <laughs> you should. I, she's wonderful. She's amazing. Yeah. She just had a trial last week in San Antonio um, and, and, and kicked butt. And, um, but, I heard. Uh, she... Uh, I just someone a lawyer asked me that last night, actually. And I said, well, my advice is not to work with your wife. But my advice is also if your wife is my wife, you absolutely should work with her. <laughs> so I, it's it, for us and our relationship. It's been the best thing that's happened to me. Um, but I always say, hey, your own it, it probably tears apart other relationships. But yeah. it just, you know, we're two trial lawyers. We love what we do. We, we don't mind talking about what we do all the time. And um, I've always sought her advice um, as my best counsel. And so it's really worked out. That's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been one of my great honors to be on your show. I love this show and I hope others find this one as helpful as I find all your others. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301. 
or send an email to delisi at cowanlaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at cowanlaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came. Cowan's Big Rig Bootcamp will be coming to you live Friday, June 17, 2022, from historic downtown San Antonio, Texas. In-person seating is already at capacity, so act now and secure your virtual spot to our professionally produced seminar, available via Zoom webinar. Visit TrialLawyerNation.com and click Seminar in our menu to join the in-person waitlist or register for virtual attendance. And to all those who already registered, be sure to contact Allison Bradley to take advantage of our exclusive 50% discount on your hotel stay. Just email Allison at Allison at CowanLaw.com. That's A-L-L-I-S-O-N at CowanLaw.com. Register now and we'll see you there.